Amen, amen. Good morning. I want to speak to the kids real quick. Children, look up here at me. I know you're like moving into snack mode and drawing mode, but I just want you to know uh, how glad I am and how glad the leadership of this church is that you're in here. I know that's really important to your parents as well. Uh, we're so glad you're here. Amen. Um, and we're really proud of you for being such good listeners and singers. So thank you. Let's pray. Father, we do come here singing together and celebrating the fact that you change not. Your compassions, they fail not. Your faithfulness gives us strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. No matter how dark the day may seem, we have bright hope because of who you are. We praise you for being a faithful God. You are utterly reliable and we're grateful and father we pray for our, the darkness of our day we pray that you would stop Putin we pray that you would turn his heart away from war and we pray that you would stop injustice pray for the people of Ukraine the innocent people of Ukraine and Russia that you would be with them that you would use this trial like you often do ultimately to bring people to your son Father, we pray for our members meeting tonight. Pray for the new members that we will receive into this faith family tonight, that you would use them to strengthen the membership of this church, that they would grow spiritually, that they would be more conformed to the image of Jesus as a result of this next step. And we pray for those who've gone out from us, that you would use them in their churches, wherever they're at, to use their gifts to build up the local church that they've landed in. Father, I want to pray for our students at this church. Thankful for the many students that we have, and we pray that you would be with them. Help them to see their studies ultimately as worship, all of life as worship, and they would work hard to learn about your world and your word as if they were working for you and not for man. Would you help them to study hard? Would you help them to be exemplary in their character? Help them to fight sin? Give them boldness to speak the truth and love to those around them? Pray for our students that haven't yet trusted you, that you would grant them faith and repentance. Bring them to yourself. Give them the boldness to take that first step of obedience and believer's baptism. Pray that we would continue to increasingly have a strong group of young adults in this church. And fathers, we turn to your word and we get, we get to once again behold the glory of your son. We pray that we would do that and that you would increase Christ in our lives? Would you make Christ more central to our lives? The very purpose of our existence. We pray it in his strong name. Amen. I hope you've been encouraged. We've been walking through the gospel of Matthew. If you're a guest with us, if you want to grab a Bible in front of you, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that. I think it's in the 760s-ish where we're at. We're in Matthew chapter 15. And I hope you've been encouraged as I have. We've just walked page after page seeing how utterly unique Jesus Christ is. There's none like him. And we've seen that again and again in the Gospel of Matthew. He's just such a unique combination of power and authority and compassion and kindness and gentleness and firmness and merciful. That's what I want us to see this morning is 
how Jesus shows mercy. What is mercy? It's withholding punishment from someone who deserves it. It's not getting what we deserve, but in fact, getting the opposite of what we deserve, whether it be forgiveness for the guilty or bread for the hungry or healing for the afflicted. Mercy. I don't really recommend going to the internet for the definition of Bible words, but out of curiosity, I Googled what, how they would define mercy. They actually got this one right. It said, compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. Here's how one theologian put it. God's mercy is his tender-hearted, loving compassion for his people. It's his tenderness of heart toward the needy. If grace contemplates humans as sinful, guilty, and condemned, mercy sees them as miserable and needy. And friends, that's the first step to coming to Christ, seeing ourselves as miserable and needy. And so let's consider four acts of mercy from the merciful son of David. So first, mercy to a pagan woman in Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So Jesus goes away from there and he goes to pagan territory. He goes to Tyre and Sidon. And if you know anything about the Bible, those are bad places. They were often condemned in the Old Testament by the prophets for their worship of the false god Baal. Even a pagan, the secular Jewish historian, not a Christian, Josephus, he described Tyre as, our, as notoriously our bitterest enemy. They represent everything wrong. They represent hostility and opposition against the God of Israel. Well, that's where Jesus goes. And then a Canaanite approaches. You remember Canaan in the Bible? The ancients, tribal enemies of Israel. And so you've got a Canaanite woman from Tyre and Sidon approaching. You know how Paul, you know, he was the Hebrew of Hebrews. This woman is the Gentile of Gentiles. Shows, as we're going to see, as J.C. Rowell puts it, that it is grace, not place, that makes people believers. And so this Canaanite, this pagan lady, apparently she knows a little bit of her Jewish Bible, right? She had heard about this traveling miracle worker and so knows he's coming and comes out. And what does she cry? She cries out, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Where did she get that? Well, we don't know, but clearly she knows a little bit of Bible, right? And if you don't know this part of the Bible, it's really important. One of the, there's, a, there's a few really, really, really grand promises in Scripture. We call them covenants. There's a covenant with Noah and with Abraham and with Israel and with David. And this is what he's getting at here. Son of David. Way back in 2 Samuel 7, God promised David that David would have a son, an offspring, who would have a kingdom that would be eternal. And so in so many ways, the rest of the Old Testament, we're waiting. When is the son of David coming? When is the son of David coming? When is the son of David coming? In other words, when is the kingdom coming? When is God going to make good on his promises to bring about the kingdom where the son of David will rule forever. It's a huge part of our Old Testament. In fact, I just searched in my Bible software the word David. And in the Old Testament, 970 verses popped up. 
Let me just read some of them. So, in fact, if you want to flip there with me, Psalms, if you're not familiar with the Bible, it's kind of in the middle. Just open it up. You'll probably find the Psalms. Go to Psalm 72. These are what we call messianic psalms, psalms about the coming Messiah or royal psalms. There's so much we could read. I just want you to get a sense of the fact that they were waiting on the son of David to come. Psalm 72 is written by Solomon. Well, Solomon was the son of David. We might have thought he would be the one. I think many people did. He was the one. Well, Solomon didn't turn out to be the one, did he? He was kind of the opposite of what we were looking for. Psalm 72, verse 1. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness, men the poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people in the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people and give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Skip a few verses. Look at Psalm 72, verse 8. May this king, this coming son of David, may he have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. So he's not just going to rule over Jerusalem. He's going to rule over the whole world. May desert tribes bow down before him. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him for he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Look at verse 17 of Psalm 72. May his name, the name of this king, endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him all nations call him blessed. When is this king going to come? This king who's not only going to rule over the Jewish people, going to rule over all people. When is he going to come? Flip over to Psalm 89, another messianic psalm. Psalm 89, verse 1. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever with my mouth. I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever in the heavens. You will establish your faithfulness. You've said, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And look at verse 49. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? You don't have to turn there, but let me just read Psalm 132, 11. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. And again, we could read so much more, so many prophets. Let me just read Isaiah. This is what we're celebrating every December, Isaiah chapter 9, of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. You could read from Ezekiel 34. How about this from Jeremiah? Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David 
a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness. So much of the Bible is when is the son of David coming, which is why it's so important. Do you remember? It's been a little while. Matthew chapter one, verse one. How does Matthew describe this, what this whole book is going to be about? Jesus Christ, son of Abraham, son of David. This is who he is. And this woman knows it. Someone had taught her. She had had a copy or she had been, who knows, but she is waiting for this forever king, this son of David. And here's her chance. And he ignores her. Look at verse 23, back to Matthew 15. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him saying, send her away. For she's crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Remember that the ministry of the gospels to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. We've seen that already in Matthew chapter 10. He's coming first to the Jew and then the Gentile. And we know where this gospel's headed, right? We're familiar with Matthew chapter 28, where as Jesus is ascended to the right hand of God, he then commissions his disciples to go where? All the nations, all the pagans. In fact, in Acts 1, he's going to pour out the spirit. He tells them to wait. You're not ready to go yet, but when I send my spirit, then you will go and you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria and then the ends of the earth. That's coming. Mission to the, to the world is coming, but not yet. But this lady's undeterred. She's persistent. She's not afraid of challenging social convention. Notice what she says in verse 25. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Ouch. She boldly approaches Kneels down. She's desperate for help, believes this son of David can help. And Jesus' response is quite surprising. He basically calls her a dog. Now, commentators will tell you there's a couple different words for dogs. This is the the word for a smaller dog. I don't know that that really helps, though. (laughs) And we've got to remember, in this day, they, they didn't treat dogs like we treat dogs. There were no dog spas in ancient Palestine. But Jews would call Gentiles dogs. And he may be testing her faith here. And if so, she passes. She's feisty. She's forthcoming. Look at verse 27. She said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Jesus is like, listen, the children must be satisfied first. The dogs eat the leftovers. And this bold pagan woman says, so you're saying there's a chance for me. (laughs) She knows she doesn't deserve anything, which is why she comes to him and asks for mercy. She knew about the covenant with David. Maybe she knew about the covenant with Abraham where God promised to bless all nations through the offspring of Abraham. Maybe she had heard that this gospel had gone and maybe she had heard that this son of David had actually done healings before in Gentile lands like the Decapolis or the Gadarenes. That's why these names are always mentioned in the the gospel of Matthew because this is history and geography matters. Maybe 
She had heard about that Roman centurion. Remember, Roman centurion, he's a soldier. He's he's a high-ranking soldier in the Roman army. Remember, the Roman army was the enemy of the people of God. Maybe she had heard about him. Strikingly, only this woman, as we'll see in a moment, and that Roman soldier are the only ones publicly praised for their faith. Let's look at it. Chapter 8. Look back to Matthew 8, verse 10. The faith of a centurion. We'll just pick it up. He comes to the Lord. Jesus says, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found faith like this enemy. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Maybe she heard about that. Either way, this woman knows two things. She knows she has a great need and she believes this son of David can meet that need. And so she boldly pleads with him. And Jesus responds positively. Look at verse 28. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So Jesus heals the daughter of this Canaanite lady. Jesus applauds her boldness. She's made her case and Jesus responds and heals her daughter. And he says that her faith is great. Again, no other person in this gospel is described with great faith besides a Canaanite woman from Tyre. In fact, he said the opposite. We just saw that, right? In no one in Israel have I seen such faith. Or he'll call his disciples a couple times in chapter 8 and in chapter 14. Oh, you of little faith. Well, here is this pagan woman who has great faith. And she didn't deserve the help. She did not deserve it. And Jesus gives mercy. If you would be saved, you must take the posture of this Canaanite woman. Go to him as Lord, as son of David, and put your faith in him. Mercy to a pagan woman. Second, mercy to the afflicted. Look at verse 29 of Matthew 15. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Jesus bringing about more healing and restoration. And you know, we tend to kind of just gloss over this. It just sounds Bible-ish to us, and we don't really stop and think about these people. There's so many that we could double-click on, so many that we will in glory to see how their lives were utterly changed in their life, but also in the life to come. The lame and crippled restored. I mean, just imagine. People who couldn't walk or move, granted mobility. Granted a second chance in life without such massive limitations, especially in that day. 
The blind see. Can you imagine? Wouldn't if you want to be there, a blind person given sight. The best we can come, maybe you've seen uh, those, those lenses where someone who's colorblind is given, you know, they put them on, they can see color for the first time. Such a beautiful thing. Um, one time I saw one and the, they kind of had a party. They had bought them for a guy and couldn't afford them. And they kind of had a party. They had a bunch of balloons and he puts the glasses on and he's like, those aren't the same color. He could actually see color. Well, that's just pales in comparison to the blind being given sights. The mute given speech. The deaf hearing. Some of the sweetest, it's rare that I will point you to the internet, <laughs> but some of the sweetest videos on the internet are those where you have little kids who are given cochlear implant surgery and they're able to hear their mama's voice for the first time. So sweet. Just a picture. Just a glimpse. And that's what I mentioned a couple weeks ago. Is this what this is? Jesus is giving just a picture, a glimpse of what life's going to be like, a preview of the coming kingdom. I'm a preview guy. I don't watch a lot of movies, so if I want to watch them, I want to make sure it's good. So I want to watch the preview. I won't watch a movie without watching a preview. Well, Alicia's different. She refuses to watch previews. It ruins the movie for her, right? Because the, the preview will show you all the best scenes and the funniest lines. And the point of a preview is to draw you in. That's why she doesn't want to do it. Well, I want to. And this is really what this has happened. Jesus is just giving us a preview here in his first coming of what life's going to be like on the new creation. A glimpse of the kingdom of Christ. A foretaste of what it's going to be like. I think Isaiah 35 looms large for the gospel writers. Let me read it. Just promise, this promise of what the kingdom will be like. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. It'll be a place of fruitfulness. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. I think there's actually going to be a lot of continuity between this world and the world to come. Romans 8 just says it's going to be renewed. It says the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. I think West Texas will be filled with big, tall trees. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy in singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and to make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold your God. He will come with vengeance with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. And then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water in the haunt of jackals where they lie down. The grass shall become reeds and rushes and a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall not belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Oh, come, Lord Jesus. We get a glimpse of that here in the gospel. And these verses are actually really similar to what we've seen if you've been with us in Matthew. Why? Why repeat it here? Because now Jesus 
is in Gentile territory. He wants us to see that his ministry is the same, whether he's in the homeland or pagan lands. Jesus heals the afflicted regardless of where they're from and regardless of their background. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. And how do they respond? Well, they glorified God. When Jesus healed, they glorified the God of Israel. Third, mercy to the hungry. Look at verse 32. Here Jesus, he feeds more people who lacked food. And you can ask, well, hold on, didn't Jesus just do this? Why, did he, why would he do it again? Didn't he just do 5,000? Yeah, he did. Well, why did he do it again? I think two reasons. First, because there were more people in need. And Jesus is a compassionate Savior. Look at verse 32. Then Jesus calls his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling, I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. So first, there were people in need, but also second, again, because this is pagan territory. This is mostly, if not all, Gentiles in a Gentile land. So Jesus wants his disciples and us to see that he's doing kingdom work in Jewish and Gentile lands. The disciples need all the help they can get. Look at verse 33. The disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? <laughs> If you've been with us, or maybe you haven't been with us, just a couple pages ago, he fed 5,000 in front of the disciples. We so easily forget, don't we? Once again, Jesus has it all under control. Verse 34. Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish and having... Given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Seven baskets left over. The number of perfection. But notice here, we see this morning that sometimes the people of Jesus get out of alignment with Jesus. Here, the disciples dismiss Jesus because there's too many to feed. It's the same thing they did with the feeding of the 5,000. Flip back to Matthew 14, verse 15. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day's now over. Send the crowds away to go into the village, buy food for themselves, send them to the grocery store. And then we just saw it with the, the, the Canaanite woman. Look at chapter 15, verse 23. He didn't answer her a word and his disciples came and begged him saying, send her away. Or she's crying out after us. See, they dropped the ball. The disciples dropped the ball here with the crowds and with this woman. Sometimes the people of Jesus lack the compassion of Jesus. That happens. Maybe you're here and that's your issue. You don't want to be here. You're not a Christian. And one of the main reasons you are not a Christian is because you don't like the church. There's a book. They like Jesus, not the church. And your main hang-up is, well, 
I don't like the way Christians act. They don't act like Jesus. I would just respond with, with three replies. One would be, Christians are sinners. That's kind of the whole point. We gather here together, not because we're better than people. We gather here together, not because we have it all together. We may look nice on the outside. We gather here together because we are a people who know we're sinners who need salvation, and we found that salvation in Jesus Christ. We're beggars who found bread trying to help other beggars find bread. So that's the first thing to know is we will fail you. It's kind of who we are. It's why we're here. It's the whole point. That's why there's a cross. The cross provides forgiveness for sinful people. But second, I would just encourage you to let Jesus be your gauge. The people of Jesus should have a compelling witness. And especially when we fail, we should repent and confess that. But at the end of the day, I would encourage you to consider Jesus, not the people of Jesus. Let him be your gauge because there's more mercy in Christ than there is in his people. But third, something really important to know, especially in Abilene, Texas, is they may not be legitimate Christians. You know, there's this category of a false convert, someone who says they're a Christian but actually hasn't been born again. And Abilene is filled with such people. I was one for all through high school. Jesus addresses that in the Sermon on the Mount. As he's ending his sermon, he says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, but will not enter the kingdom of heaven. They had some religiosity and they said they were Christians, but at the end of the day, Jesus didn't know them. And so know that. I've yet to meet a non-Christian in Abilene, Texas. But I bet there's a whole lot of people that would say, yeah, I'm a Christian that actually don't know the Lord. So know that. Maybe they don't look anything like Jesus because they don't know Jesus. Mercy to the hungry. Fourth, a merciful warning. Look at chapter 16, verse 1. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. I mean, haven't they seen enough? Jesus has healed the sick and casted out demons, calmed the storm, fed the hungry, even raised people from the dead. And we just saw it right here in chapter 15, verse 30. Isn't that enough? No, it's not. Not for them. And remember, it's not the first time that they've been unsatisfied with the amazing things that Jesus had been doing. We saw that in chapter 12, verse 38. They, they basically said the same thing. Some of the scribes and Pharisees this time answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And he answered, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it. See, unbelief is a stubborn thing. In fact, Romans 1 tells us that actually signs aren't the issue. Romans 1 tells us that because of the created order, all people know there's a God. And there's just two responses. You can submit to that or you can suppress it. And that's what we have here. They don't need more signs. They've seen enough. They're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. So they're asking for more. Mark tells us in Mark's account that Jesus sighed deeply. But notice the difference in posture in this Canaanite woman and then these religious leaders who know their Old Testament so well, they stiff arm him and make demands, test him, and she falls to her knees and begs for mercy. The latter, that's what God's looking for. Well, who were the Pharisees and Sadducees? 
mentioned before about the Pharisees, we tend to think Pharisees are the bad guys, but actually in their day, they were the good guys. They were the ones really serious about holiness. They were the, they were the moral majority in their day. They probably took holiness more serious than anybody, especially, especially purity and the purity laws and the kosher laws. So they were really frustrated with the rest of the Jewish people because they weren't serious enough about their faith. And they thought one of the reasons why the Roman, Romans were oppressing them is they weren't serious enough. And so the Pharisees were this purity movement, this political movement saying, hey, y'all need to take the law more seriously and then God will act. God's going to act and he's going to redeem us, but he's going to do it through us. We're going to be his agents. And so they were the conservatives. Sadducees, on the other hand, were theologically liberal. They denied much of the Bible. They were very wealthy. They were very worldly. They denied miracles. They did not believe in a future resurrection from the dead, which is what made them sad, you see. You knew it was coming. They did believe in a coming Messiah, but they thought he would just be like a political, effective political leader. And so these two parties were at odds. They were antagonistic towards one another. Each one thought the other was the problem. Sound familiar? So they're strange bedfellows. They have a common cause. Opposition to Jesus Christ. They have a cross-party delegation. And nothing unites like a common enemy. Look at verse 2. He answered them, when it's evening, you say, it'll be fair weather for the sky is red in the morning. It'll be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Jesus rebukes him, look, you can read the weather, but you can't read the times. You need to open your eyes. I would suggest for us today in 2022, we need to as well, church, we need to be more aware than ever that there's no neutrality out there. We need to be aware of the times. You need to know the air that we're breathing. Galatians 1 says that it, this present age is evil. So we can't just imbibe the values of the world's. Ephesians 5 says that. Galatians 1 says the same thing. Are you aware of the air we're breathing? This generation of Jewish leadership was not. They were blinded by their own agenda, and Jesus condemns them. In fact, I think this is the sixth time that Jesus condemns this generation, this evil and adulterous generation. We'll see it again, and it's going to come to a head. It's, it is coming to a head, as we've already seen, where it's going to ultimately end in this generation crucifying the Son of God. It's where we're headed. Comes to a head in Matthew 23 and ultimately at the crucifixion. And they will receive no sign except the sign of Jonah, the resurrection from the dead. Look at verse 5. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Here we go again. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000? And how many baskets you gathered? Let me just push pause right here for our college kids. 
Probably what you will hear is that Matthew has mistakenly put two different oral traditions together and that there weren't actually two episodes. They'll say, well, Matthew got confused. He added the 5,000. Later, he added the 4,000 because he just was confused. That route calls Jesus a liar because he just mentioned both accounts. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 11. How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, ding, 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 but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Oh, the disciples are so worldly-minded. They're just preoccupied with physical needs. All they can think about is lunch. Jesus is warning them about leaven, and they're like, huh, leaven makes me think about bread. It's been a while since I've eaten. Anybody got any food? They were dull. That's why Jesus says over in chapter 15, are you still without understanding? <laughs> They're worldly minded. Don't be like the disciples. Don't be consumed with the world, with your physical health or your financial health. Be much more concerned with the eternal, with your soul more than your body. And Jesus has used leaven as an example before when Cody, Cody preached in Matthew 13, a positive example of the, of the kingdom being like leaven and spreading through. Well, here it's a negative example, and it's used as a symbol for false teaching. And Jesus warns us here. He says, beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Watch and beware. We need to hear this. Every Christian is called multiple places in the Bible to beware of false teaching, to be on guard against it. Well, what's he warning against? What is the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees? What is their leaven? I think we could say a lot, but I think four main things from what we've seen in Matthew so far. What, what should we be on guard for? Four main things. Number one, especially in Abilene, Texas, at heart, again, the Pharisees and Sadducees were very religious people. And you would look at them and think, wow, they're very serious about their religion. They even know their holy books quite well. But they deny Jesus. And so we want to beware of a religiosity that's not Christ-centered. Which is why next week's passage is going to be so important when Jesus asks his disciples, who am I? Who do you say that I am? I am the Christ, the son of the living God. Friend, if you're here again, you don't know Christ, I would just want you to know that religion is not the way. Jesus is the way. And there is a distinction. That's why in this gospel, the main antagonists to Jesus are the religious people. The pagans come and bow down before him. So if you got questions about that, there's nothing we enjoy talking more, me or any member of this church or one of the elders. Let's talk. So they're religious, but they deny Jesus. The second characteristic of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees is they denied the sufficiency of Scripture. We saw with Nathan last week, they elevated human tradition over the word of God. Chapter 15, verse 6, Jesus rebukes them. For the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. And again, in two different ways. The Pharisees were prone to add to it. And they added all these laws. You know, there was, there was obey the Sabbath. And they added like 40 laws on what that looked like. On the other hand, the Sadducees were prone to take away from the word. You know, it's really hard to believe in miracles today. That resurrection stuff is kind of weird for our modern ears in the first century. Let's just cut that out. Let's be more culturally palatable. It's been with us from the beginning. Humans have always been prone either to legalism or to liberalism. Adding to the word of God or taking away from the word of God. No, God's word is sufficient. 
Let's beware of adding or taking away. Watch out. Jesus, the Lord of the world, warns his church, beware of this. And then third, we've seen this just this cynicism, haven't we? I mean, give me another sign. Let me test them. This, this unbelief. And so let's be on guard for a cynical heart. And again, it's hard because everything in our culture is saying this ain't the way. Everything in culture is saying this is outdated. This doesn't work. And so let's guard our hearts against a heart of unbelief, of questioning, of cynicism. Anytime we're wrestling with the word and we find some problem, our, our posture needs to be, the, the problem must be here, not here. We don't put ourselves above this because to put ourselves above this is to put ourselves above God. Cynicism, fourth, and we've seen it a lot and we'll see it a lot more, and that is hypocrisy. Jesus rebukes them for their hypocrisy. They say certain things. They look a certain way on the outside, but again, as we saw last week, what is Jesus after? He's after the heart. He's after wholehearted followers of Christ. So Jesus says, beware. And what I want you to see is this warning against false teaching is merciful. It's mercy to warn us against false teaching. Why? Because false teaching saps the life out of you in this age and can have eternal consequences. And Jesus knows that sound doctrine, sound teaching is life-giving. So it's a mercy for Jesus to warn us against going astray when it comes to doctrine. So church, let's heed and hold to the words of Jesus, the merciful Lord and son of David. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. You're so kind to us. And thank you for mercy. Really, at the end of the day, the only thing we deserve in this room is condemnation. It's what we deserve. It's what we've earned. But because of Jesus Christ, you've given us the opposite of what we've earned and deserve. May we be a people who sing strong in light of these realities, but also live strong for the glory of Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen.